tuning in for another episode of Big Stick Energy. Uh, I'm Tori here with my co-host Renee, and today we are interviewing one of our good friends, Sophia Warrington. Um, a lot of you might not like, you know, she's kind of like an undercover badass. Um, we both know Sophia because she has a super developed skill profile going on solo adventures by herself, like really gnarly ones, like kayaking uh, between like the mainland and Vancouver Island and just kind of like going on these really gnarly like 22 hour traverses where she gets stalked by a cougar. And we really wanted to interview her about this because the skill sets that it takes to become comfortable in the outdoors like that by yourself is freaking rad. And she has a really cool family history growing up sailing and in Squamish. And yeah, today we dip into her most recent trip, which was an eight day kayaking trip that was 100% solo, and also some really great tips and stories that she has about adventure soloing. Because I, sorry, solo adventuring, blame that on my dyslexia. Um, but yeah, she's an overall 10 out of 10 human certified badass. And today, that's what you're getting. Uh, before we dip into the episode, we just have a couple ads to run through, you know, got to pay the bills. So thank you for tuning in for that. And um, yeah, if you feel so inclined, leave us a review, a dad joke, all that kind of stuff. We love to hear your feedback and it kind of helps us move up the food chain, keep getting episodes out to everyone. So yeah, thanks for tuning in, you guys. Have a great day and I hope you enjoy the episode. Our first sponsor for today's show is Darn Tough Vermont. They make merino wool socks. These socks are lightweight. They wick better than cotton. And they really have socks for every activity. They've got your winter skiing, snowboarding socks, as well as your summer activity socks. So lately, I have been wearing the no-show merino sock for both trail running and a little bit hiking as well. Sometimes with hiking, I prefer the mid-height just because you're going through kind of like the brush sock but darn tough has both i've tried both they're really awesome they have kept my feet dry wicking away the moisture on some really hot days lately so darn tough vermont go check out their website they call them darn tough because they are tough go and grab yourself a pair and keep your feet happy and blister free and dry Thank you to Onyx for sponsoring today's show. Onyx is a GPS app. You can use it in the summer, you can use it in the winter. Lots of people use it for skiing through winter, but I had the chance to use it this summer. It shows you everything from campsites to hiking trails to forestry roads. I'm not sure if those are called something different in the States. But what worked really well for me when I was using it last week, being down in the USA, I didn't have any data on because I didn't want to be charged roaming. So I downloaded some of the areas that I was going to be in in an offline map. And then I was able to look at that area without having any data and still have access to any information about that hike, the weather, etc., as well as just being able to see where I was at along that trail the entire time. So Onyx, you can download their app in the App Store. Super helpful app for planning your trip and for keeping yourself on track while you're out there. Yeah, I like, I always think that like I'm an adventure person and like I like doing adventurous things. And then I remember the first time I met you and you were telling me about some of your trips and the things that you've done. And I was like, 
hot damn. I was like, I have nothing. <laughs> like, no it's so way. You do cool. Cool trips. Like, but I don't think I. Thank you. I don't think yeah. I could do them like by myself though. And I don't think it's fair to say that you're not adventurous because you're not doing the same things. Because I think there's okay. like a, a scale of of stuff, right? And it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to start with doing a small hike to begin with. No matter how old you are, your first hike is probably not going to be armchair traverse because <laughs> yeah. that's just fucked. Unless you're like <laughs> a small kid and then who knows? You probably get dragged off that when you're like three years old. You know, but you're going to work up to things as you build experience, as you build gear. So just because you're only starting with like day hikes or going camping, doing your first camping trip does not mean that you're not adventurous. I guess yeah, it's a jumping off point and it's like a big part of the activities I do solo now is because I started doing them like that much longer ago and started off with like, like you said, like those like easy one day trips or like a good afternoon with groups and with people who knew what they were doing or had more experience than I did and then like slowly worked up to that. So there's no way I would ever go and do like my own backcountry ski tour, like even just a day out, like that's so far out of my comfort zone to do that solo but for other people that just comes so naturally and that's where they're happy so it's like just yeah different different sports and different comfort levels within those sports oh yeah I wasn't trying to say one's better or worse or that like starting you can't get there um for myself the unpredictability of the outdoors sometimes is a lot for me so like doing that by myself is a lot and I struggle to like plan because there's so many variables that are not certain, mm -hmm. which is difficult. And that could be my autism that struggles with it. It's something I'm trying to learn, like systemize so that I can feel more comfortable in the backcountry and make decisions. But it's like, um, I, what I was trying to do there, which obviously was not taken that way is compliment you for being a badass. But <laughs> anyways, I wasn't saying one's, <laughs> one's better or one's worse I believe into or not bleed I believe in tooting my friend's horns and you're like a certified badass so that's what I was trying to say <laughs> anyways who are you tell everybody who you are <laughs> Tori, um, Tori I wasn't saying that what is like that you basically I was just saying that you're a badass too okay all right so we're all badasses <laughs> okay it's the circle of badassery everyone here is a badass do not just count yourself of being a badass <laughs> bitch. That is our like starting remark. Sophia, bad. You? <laughs> uh, wait, oh. <laughs> wait, has anybody cornered that yet? Bab? Badass bitch? Bab? I think that's, that's a sticker. Bad shit. I think that has to be a sticker. I think it has to be a shit. Bab. I feel yeah. like that also could stand for big ass bush. Is that like oh, good. the same oh, thing? <laughs> that's huge bush energy huge bush Ooh, yeah yeah let's go okay we're taking that <laughs> to the print press anyways sophia who are you introduce yourself <laughs> uh yeah hi i'm sophia i am a badass bitch according to these two <laughs> um i live in squamish right now i've been up here for about two years uh, i grew up in vancouver and was really lucky to sort of grow up doing a lot of really cool outdoor shit um started sailing at quite a young age so got sort of my first experience being out on the water and out in the wind and the waves and sort of learning 
how to read and interact in those conditions. And then from that, like had a really active childhood, played a lot of beach volleyball and essentially everything that would keep us busy as a kid. And yeah, sort of, I don't know. I'm the oldest of five, so kind of had to start being very independent from a young age because there were four other screaming children running around. Um, So I think that sort of definitely helped me sort of branch into doing more solo trips. So I've done a couple climbs and hikes in Nepal solo, went to Morocco solo. Um, And then now that I live in Squamish, it's... Yeah, I spend most of my most of my solo trips out on the water uh, on a kayak, and the occasional like little hike or something like that. Yeah. Um, where to start? I guess well, the main thing we really want to chat about is the solo kayak trip. So I think we could start with that, and then I want to talk about Nepal and Morocco, and I mean, I think just like solo adventures is probably going to be the theme of this whole episode but we'll see where we get yeah and like I remember when I when I messaged you about this or like well actually just when we were talking like you had so many good tips for staying safe or like what you would do like with your sleep schedules all different types of stuff um which I think are super valuable and also I don't know I, I follow some people on TikTok that do solo adventures as women and they have hacks to stay safe in the outdoors as women because you could come across someone else out there that is like, you know, you're in the freaking bush. So I don't know if you have anything on that, but let's like step back to the kayak trip because you did that when I was in Squamish and I did not ask you how it was at the beginning of this call because I wanted you to talk about it here. But yeah, kayak trip, how was yeah, it? Yeah, it was, it was awesome. So uh, this past year at the start of July, I went up to an area called the Broughtons. So it's Northeast Vancouver Island. It's kind of the last cluster of little islets and channels before you open up into the Queen Charlotte Strait and then up north into open water. Uh, I was initially planning on going for 12 days and ended up only having eight on the water just due to the conditions. Um, but yeah, it was it was awesome. I did the whole thing solo, um, carried all of my food and my water. It's nice on a kayak because you don't have to really worry about weight as much. Um, and ran into two of the groups the whole time I was out there. But yeah, it was it was amazing. And it's the second year I've done a solo kayak trip out in the BC waters. I remember you saying that you weren't sure how long you were going to go for. Like, how long did you end up being out there for? Yeah, I ended up being out on the water for eight days. Um, I don't like having too much structure or like, plans going into trips like that because there's so many factors that you can't control um so just try and be as aware as possible of like what the wind forecast is like what the um, weather is going to be what the currents are like and just all of these factors that could potentially change where I'm gonna be what route I'm gonna take how long I can be out in the water and just sort of factor that in to what I'm comfortable with and just sort of take it day by day. Like every morning I'd wake up and check the uh, carrier BHF radio with me um, so I can tune into the weather. And it's also just nice having like background noise. I noticed on like day four or five, I was just going a little bit insane because it had been raining the entire time. So usually on the trip before last year, I was up in Desolation Sound, which is like absolute paradise. 
and it's just blue water and warm and sunny and like you can just hang out and read on rocks all day um and I kind of went into this trip thinking it would be similar um but up north it hadn't quite hit summer yet so it was very cold rain the water was absolutely freezing so I was just in my dry suit all day every day from 7 a.m to 7 p.m and then sitting in my tent so definitely went a little bit crazy and just started listening to the VHF radio's background noise that's kind of my question because I find if I spend too much time by myself it's like my own internal voice <laughs> just I start to ruminate and I think that's probably just my anxiety as well but that's probably my biggest thing with doing something like that by myself is that I actually have to spend the entire time by myself and I love being on my own and being introverted but there's a certain amount of quiet and like being truly by yourself with minimal distractions that I find a little bit intimidating and like kind of terrifying. Yeah, I've definitely had moments where I'm like very aware that I'm the only person around. Um, so on this past trip, I think it was on day four or five or something like that. Um, and I was about as far as I was going to get from uh, Telegraph Cove where I'd started. And I was sort of into this uh, area that I was nearly at the mainland. I could see it on the other side of this channel. Uh, it was 5 p.m. I would sort of hung out a bit later than I should have at this one spot. And I was doing this crossing to get to these little islands where I was going to camp the next night. Or, sorry, that night. And it was already quite quiet for most of the trip. Like there were very few boats around, very few other kayakers. Um, but for the most part, you could always see like a little sailboat or like a clear cut or a little cabin or something out on the water. And then this one section, it was like, again, the weather was like very gray and drizzling and just sort of like that starting to get dusky vibe. And it was so quiet and I was just like, stop paddling in the middle of this channel and you could hear absolutely nothing like there were no planes overhead no boats and you're just like i am the only person in this area floating on a 16 piece or sorry 16 foot piece of plastic like definitely there's definitely moments where you're very aware but i don't know it's i feel more comfortable in those scenarios than I would if I was surrounded with other people because for me that's the biggest variable when I'm doing backcountry trips is how other people are going to act and react as opposed to what the conditions are because I know how to read and interpret and react to those I guess. Do you find it mentally hard to be on your own for that long or do you find it to be like a really nice escape from reality where it rejuvenates you I like it <laughs> I need it I yeah I got a very social job in Squamish and I'm not a very extroverted social person I would say so I really do need that time to just not talk and not be around people and just sort of be in my own for a little bit. Um, eight days was definitely interesting. That's one of the longer trips I've done. Um, and because there were so few people up there, I was doing longer stretches without really talking or I don't know, like just little little things you don't really recognize that you're doing when you're around people. And then when you're by yourself, you're like, I, what do I do? 
<laughs> Definitely get a bit bored. So what do you do to like cure the boredom? Like what are your things that you bring or, you know, those, like you said, you listen to radio, but do you read books? Like what does that look like? Plan your next day? Like walk us uh, through like a typical day on the water from like travel to camp to entertaining yourself. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess the night before I would look at the current and the tie tables for the next day and sort of figure out um, what crossings I would need to do at slack tide and sort of plot my route on or a potential route on the map. Uh, most mornings I'd be up at like six or seven because at that point slack was around eight um, so I'd have enough time to leave whatever bay or island I was on and then head over to do that crossing at slack as the currents did get pretty strong up there um, and then yeah so wake up breakfast pack down the tent um, double check the weather on the radio load everything up and then I'd generally spend about a deuce like eight in the morning to about one in the afternoon on the water and then stop for a little lunch break and stretch my legs because they get pretty sore when you don't do anything but sit for four hours um and then yeah back on the water I try and pick a campsite around three or four in the afternoon so I'd at least I would have at least pulled up onto that site walked around see how I felt about it and then if I liked it then I would I could either go back out on the water, um, which I did a lot just because it was raining the whole time. So I'm kind of limited once I'm on shore to what I can do. It's just either sit in the rain in my dry suit and stare out at things because I can't read books without them getting wet or hide in my tent and then I don't get to see the views. Um, but yeah, I think on average, I'd probably spend about eight hours on the water and then, yeah, unpack everything, build up camp dinner and then my my hack for falling asleep by myself when I'm like on these solo trips is buy the strongest melatonin gummies I can find and just chug like five of them right before bed and then go to bed while it's still light out so I just hide in my tent and try and pass it out before it got dark sick I know that you so I'm gonna hover on the I have so many questions um mm -hmm. Hovering on the sleeping thing, I remember you mentioned that you have hacks to kind of um, like if you feel sketchy about wildlife, because like Vancouver Island, you were Vancouver Island, like on that side, right? Yeah. 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 Um, like they have the highest population. Um, when we were in Squamish, actually, my boyfriend and all of his friends hiked down to the hidden sauna um down by one of the rivers and it was at night and I was like I'm really tired I'm gonna go to bed but I'm sitting there by myself and so I was googling statistics on bear attacks and cougar attacks Ooh. um to make myself comfortable they're actually pretty good you have a one in two million yeah. chance of being attacked by a bear in North America and it's very unlikely that that would happen in North America although I would say that your chance is much more statistically high if you do stuff that you do or like that we do um <laughs> But there's also only been five fatal cougar attacks in the last like hundred years in North America. And it's very rare to see a sighting, but the biggest population of cougars and bears is Vancouver Island. Yeah. And that was one of the stats that I, that's as far as I'd gotten knowing that yeah. I was in the air with like the most cougars. And I, I'd say cougars like me, I've had some great run-ins with them in the past. Um, we did Excuse this. Excuse me. 
<laughs> a friend and I had done Alpha a couple of years ago, um, which is this beautiful mountain up in the Tantalus Range in Squamish. And we did it in a day. So we left, we crossed the river at like 4.30 in the morning and then went up and summited. And then we were a bit slow coming down because um, my friend had fallen and hurt her knee. So we were just sort of taking our time coming back and we were nearly down at the bottom and we'd been going for 22 hours at this point. It was just a mission. So we were so out of it, like starting to get delirious. We'd been moving the entire time as well. We were just going very slow and got back down to the river. And all of a sudden, like, you know, when you get that feeling and it's just like, I shouldn't be here right now. Like, I need to get out of this area. I'd got that. Um, but I was also like, okay, like you're just delirious and you've been walking for 22 hours. Like you only thing you've been eating is gummy bears for the past 10 hours. Like you're fine. Um, and then I could hear something. We were so close as well to the, to the crossing. Um, and then I could hear something in the bush and I was like, all right, it's just like a little, a little bird or a squirrel or something. Just, it's fine. Um, so I just kept walking. And then my partner had fallen a little bit behind. So I had turned around um, to be like, all right, like just stay close. And as I did that, this noise that had been following us for a little bit, like parallel in the bush, I could see like a dark shape dart behind her onto like across the trail and onto the other side. And she noticed it as well. Um, so essentially we had this cougar stalking us through the bushes at again, like four in the morning the next day. And we had, yeah, we were just, I, so delirious at this point. Um, so we were, we grabbed sticks and rocks and we were just making as much noise as we could and walking like as fast as we could without running. Um, and just like shining our flashlights around and it just kept on following us like until we got picked up by the boat. Essentially, we found this little shack and we were just sort of sitting with our backs against it just so we could have like a clear vision. I was like mostly concerned about it getting up in the trees because once it gets up in the trees, like every time a leaf would fall, I'd like shine my flashlight up. Um, so yeah, we were stuck on the other side of the Squamish River, getting stalked by a cougar at 4 a.m. after a 22-hour mission. So that was fun. And then the next day at work, I was convinced the cougar was in this, like, I used to work at this outdoor cafe, and we were closing it down at night, and I had to go get something from one of the tables, and I was, like, convinced the cougar had crossed the river and was just waiting for me in that corner. I still hadn't recovered. I was still very tired. That's insane. The cougar's like, she's a snack. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm going to get it. <laughs> but holy. It was <sighs> crazy. Definitely, yeah, definitely woke us up. Definitely gave us a nice little drone rush to, to end the trip. Um, but yeah, so going into this past trip, I was also like very conscious of the fact that there, I was going to an area where there was a lot of wildlife who weren't necessarily as used to seeing humans as they are around here. Um, so my way of sort of dealing with that in a way that I would still be aware of it, but also like be comfortable and be able to fall asleep at night is I would just find like the smallest little islands I could um, and sort of plan my trip around camping on these little islets. Um, a lot of the time it was on like rocky bluffs and they're beautiful. Um, and just sort of knowing that I'm on, like, I can walk around the island, all the wildlife that's going to be on there is quite small. Because um, the big risk, or the bigger risk with wildlife is on the bigger islands. Um, so there were a couple of nights I did have to camp on those. 
but again, it's just like making, making the site or getting, getting comfortable with the sites. I'd walk around as soon as I got there, make a bunch of noise. Um, before I even pull onto the shore, I just like make some noise, usually to shout out into the bush and like see if any wild animal, <laughs> see if a bear jumps out essentially. Um, but yeah, no, I was lucky. Didn't see any, didn't see any land wildlife on this trip. Did you see some sick ocean wildlife? I saw some sick ocean wildlife. I saw oh. so many whales and dolphins and porpoises. And there's this one point um, I was crossing back over because uh, there's two big channels they have to cross. Um, and both are quite well known for whales. One's called Blackfish Sound. Um, and then the other one's Johnson Strait. Um, both have cruise ships going up and down it, but both also have like really strong tidal activity. So you get the whales coming to feed um, during those strong currents when everything's kicked up. But yeah, I'd done this one one crossing and I was nearly over the other side and there was a gray whale on one side and I was watching that and then some porpoises on the other. So I was like one side, these little things like pretty close to me and the other one was this whale just sort of off in the distance. And I wasn't paying attention, wasn't really looking where I was going. And like maybe 10 feet in front of me, this little pot of dolphins just came up and like right in front of my boat. And so it was amazing, like wildlife on all three sides. That's like National Geographic. (laughs) I think I would have cried just out of like awe. I would have like, like. I haven't been around much wildlife in the water, except for in uh, in New Zealand, uh, Curio Bay, which is like Porpoise Bay. There's these two pods of Hector dolphins, one's on the North Island and one's on the South Island, but they're endangered. And they're these little like kind of dwarf dolphins with weird shaped fins. And they call it Porpoise Bay because that's where they, I don't know, they hang out during the summers and people can go into the water and like interact with them. And it was a pretty big day, like like pretty decent sized swell. And we went around the reef um, because there's like a barrier that they've blocked off. Uh, I'm probably using all the wrong terminology, but it's fine. Um, Where they blocked off like waves coming in so that people could get into the water and try and swim with these dolphins. But there's also a great white uh, breeding zone just off of the south coast of New Zealand because it's really close to um, like Antarctica. So we're like out in the water. It's a big day. I'm definitely a land mammal. Like I am so scared of the ocean just because of like, I can't see what's underneath. And (laughs) I don't know, it just makes me feel weird, but we were in the water and, um, I was like definitely nervous getting like bashed around a lot in the waves. And all of a sudden this fin popped up like right beside me, like arm's length. And I was just like, (laughs) like, I'm going to fucking die. Like, what is it? And then this other little baby fin popped up right beside it. And it was a mama and a baby porpoise. And I was like, Oh my God. And they swam underneath my board and around me. And they went and said hi to every single person in the lineup. And then all of a sudden there were so many of them around us. And, um, Billy, one of the guys we were traveling with caught a wave and it was in front of the wave with him. It was like, and the sun was setting and I just like started crying. I was like, this is like my Disney moment. This is fucking insane. Yeah, Mother Natch is sick. Like, yeah. That's incredible. That'd it was amazing. insane. Yeah. Like, fuck SeaWorld. Okay. Like, yeah. so messed up those creatures do not deserve to be in there (laughs) it's horrible like you gotta go you just gotta go into the wild and you might see them you might not but when you do it's just like that much more amazing because you get to see them in their habitat yeah yeah um 
I want to like take a few steps back, like wildlife skills around wildlife, super important. But you talked about like um, looking at like the the tides and a bunch of other stuff and like all the skill sets that you have. How long did it take you to develop those to feel comfortable doing solo trips? I think being um, I'm definitely most comfortable doing solo trips on the water. Um, just because I think I started learning about that environment and learning about reading those currents and the tides at quite a young age. Um, we grew up with a sailboat in the family. Um, at that point, it was just a little a little 27-footer. Um, but I also was racing as a kid, so a lot of I spent a lot of time like in an actual um, classroom while I was learning how to race the dinghies, um, learning about what the wind does and how to read it and the currents and just navigating in that as well and then that sort of transferred into doing um, longer trips with my family growing up in the summers we'd go for sometimes up to six or seven weeks um, and just sail around the coast so it's just sort of in that environment from quite a young age and in that environment in a way where you have to like be very in tune with it to sort of yeah move, move the boat around essentially like we would just, again like go into it with a very rough idea of where we wanted to go um but a big part of being on the water is like you can't you can't force anything so if the wind's blowing you one way and you want to go the other you can either fight it or you just go downwind or wherever you wherever it's going to take you um so i think being very flexible and adaptable is very necessary with reading the wind and the currents um but yeah i'd say i started uh, yeah probably about 18 years ago, I'd say. Okay. Sweet. So that's a lot of experience. Um, so like outside of family, like starting to be a land mammal and doing stuff <laughs> in the mountains and exploring that, like what was the development process for some of those skills? And like, um, I guess, do you have any advice on like courses you should take if you want to get into um, doing solo trips or like books that you've read? Like how did you kind of yeah, you've, you've been in some gnarly situations. Like you gotta be able to manage your shit when you're in those. So like, what would you recommend to? Uh, definitely a first aid course. I feel like that is the most important. It's like, you have to, anytime I go off on an, any type of adventure, like re regardless of if it's solo or with a group, anytime I put myself in a position where shit could go wrong, like it's, you have to be comfortable with the fact that you have to get yourself out of that situation. So definitely um, a first aid course and just sort of like basic wilderness skills. Um, I honestly haven't taken too many courses. A lot of what I've learned has just been through experience with other people. Um, I feel like that's such an invaluable resource as well is that finding that community. And I was very, very lucky to find that at a young age. Um, both on the water and on land. Um, I started hiking with this group down in the city when I was about 16. Um, and every Sunday we'd go off and pick a different hike um, within the area. And there's just like people of all different skills and experience in the, in the backcountry and just sort of chatting with them. And yeah, that's honestly probably where I've learned, learned the most of what I've done. And then again, it's just starting small and knowing what you're comfortable with and then taking baby steps from there. 
What was your spark to go to Nepal or Morocco and do an international solo trip? So I just wanted to get out of Vancouver. I was done. I graduated high school and I was like, I want to go to the other side of the world and be away from everything. So I didn't go to university or I haven't gone to university yet. Um, so I don't do very well in an indoor classroom setting and just like, I don't know, my mental health had tanked in high school and I just wasn't very happy with where my life was at in Vancouver. So it was just for me, like having the opportunity to just sort of restart and literally go to the other side of the world. Um, I think that was a very big motivation and just the adventure as well. Like it's, I went out to Nepal with another friend um, who's also done a lot of solo travel, like amazing badass chick. Um, so we travel really well together because we both go into it knowing that it's, even though we're both there, it's, we still have the ability to do our own trip. We're not tied to each other and what the other person wants to do. Um, so yeah, we spent 10 days in the Annapurna region with a group, uh, or with, there's three of us on that one. And then met up with some other friends. Um, and we both just sort of took a couple days and did our own solo stuff. Um, within that group just to I don't know there's no like it's not that I don't want to do it with people but it's nice to just go off and experience it by yourself as well yeah Nepal like that Annapurna area is something that I've always kind of looked at and I think it looks so beautiful compared to I mean, Everest, for example, just seems kind of overdone. And I like get the point of like going up Everest and it being a big deal and like whatever. But I, I just feel like Annapurna to me just looks better. Did you do both or one or? Yeah, we ended up doing both. Um, Annapurna is just the region there is incredible. Um, I think I did. It's so hard to say like liking one better than the other. Um, just because they are so different and are just like you're in the Himalayas like how can you compare um, but Annapurna is definitely a lot it's a bit lower level so you're in a lot more jungle um, and a lot more trees and then at the end of it you open up into like this incredibly beautiful valley with all these huge peaks around you and that's when you get to base camp um, whereas Everest you're already starting at so high that your first couple of days you are walking through trees and forests and then you're into Alpine and you just stay in Alpine for I think we stayed up there for like two and a half weeks I would say because um, we went to base camp and then did the three or the idea was to do the three passes as well um, but I had gotten a parasite on the first full day I didn't realize what that was until about eight days later. I just thought I'd eaten something weird. I drank water without it filtering properly. Um, so I'd woken up the next day and just felt sick. So I was like, I'll, I'll just catch up with you guys. Like, you go ahead. Um, and just sort of, yeah, slept for a little bit longer and it wasn't getting any better. So I walked and caught up with them and just felt, I don't know. Honestly, I felt hungover. Um, and then... The next day, I was like, couldn't get out of bed. So we took a rest day in this one town. And then same thing, I just sort of sent everyone else ahead. I was like, I'll just, I'll catch up. Like I'm already acclimatized. I've done everything in Annapurna. Um, couldn't keep down any, 
or not even keep down any food. I just had no appetite, so I couldn't eat anything. And I was like forcing myself to drink water, any like Tylenol or anything. I hadn't uh, take like just didn't do anything. Um, and that went on for about four more days. And my friend and I had plans to go sort of ditch the rest of the, our group. There's six of us. Um, and then her and I just planned to like run off a couple days early and do this side peak called uh, Island Peak. So it's 6,000 meters um, right on the other side of Lotse. So you have Everest and then Lotse and then like a valley and an Island Peak. So you just get to look at the backside and it's incredible. Um, so at, at this point, I like could, I hadn't eaten for four days. I bought like half a can of Pringles and that's all I'd had for, I'd been nibbling on that for three days at that point. Um, so pretty weak and was very stubborn that I could still do this climbing trip. Um, so tried to like, we got all over gear and we just started walking at like two, three in the afternoon and to get to the Island Peak base camp. And it took me half an hour to walk what should have taken five minutes. So eventually I had to make the call and just be like, I'm too sick for this. Like you guys, I can't physically can't do this. I had to go back and just essentially hang out in this town for three days till the rest of the group caught up. Um, while my friend went and summited by herself. And then, yeah, I still don't really know what it was, but I got so weak. I dropped to like under a hundred pounds for not eating and just still being like in a very physically taxing environment as well as at 4,500 meters. Um, so you have the altitude, like there's so many other factors. Um, and eventually one of my friends who was in the rest of the group was a nurse and I don't know what she gave me, but she gave me something that just sort of killed whatever I had in me so I could start eating and drinking again. Um, so thank you for that. She just, she was like, yeah, I grabbed a bunch of stuff and that we might've needed. Um, so that saved me. I was, a, I was honestly a day out from taking a helicopter out because I was so, so dehydrated as well that like rolling over in bed would give me a headache where I don't like nearly black out. Um, but yeah, sort of bounced back after that and went up to base camp. I sorry, went up to Everest base camp and then was chatting with the um, trekking agency that we had to go through to do this climb up on Island Peak and just sort of gave them a heads up that I was, I got sick and couldn't do it. Um, and they were amazing and let me join or tag on with this other group who were doing it uh, in three days. And they told me this at like the furthest point away from the valley. So I had to essentially run down as 30K down. And then I had two days to get back up to Island Peak. So it would have taken us five days. I had to do in two. Um, and then got back up there and joined this other group who were terrible and slow and fell because they were using their selfie stick and not paying attention to the rope. Um, so one of the guys just took me and we ran up and got it to the top of the 6,000 meter peak for sunrise. It was amazing. So highly recommend, just be careful of the water. <laughs> yeah, that's freaking gnarly. Um, Renee, can you think of what her nurse friend would have given her from your nurse brain? Yeah. I honestly, I, that's all I, I couldn't tell you just because I don't know, like, first off, like what exists in Nepal, like it could be just like a specific to traveling kind of thing that she might've had on her or. Mm. 
like, I know like people can get Giardia here, but it's not, even still like not very common. So yeah. I don't know if it's just something like that or. Oh, she said it was something that they give to chemo patients. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it was strong. Um, yeah, no, but yeah, Nepal, Nepal is amazing. I'd go back in a heartbeat and I'd probably go solo again, just because again, when you're by yourself in a place like that, you're sort of forced to interact with everyone around you if you do want to talk to people. So you just get to meet that many more just incredible people and have those incredible, um, just interactions with the most, like you'd never talk to them in your hometown. But when you're out there, we had this one, this is one night and we super tired. We did this huge day and there's this group playing music outside the room and we're like, all right, like we'll just go out for a minute. Um, and then that turned into this like huge dance party with this group. And there's like this 70 year old Nepalese man who had like taken off his shirt and was like whipping it around. And then there's like this old Japanese couple who are like in their eighties. And then there's these Nepalese kids who are like 14, 15, and just everyone in between that. Um, and there wasn't really a shared language either. So it's just everyone just dancing and having a great time. And like, you're just sort of forced into those situations. And they turn out amazing. That's so awesome. Just like pure multiculturalism, but everyone at the heart of it, just enjoying this beautiful natural area and just like, I guess like mountains, right? Like it maybe like we always talk about like, what is mountain culture? Maybe that's it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so many, so many different things. Um, but it's cool because like solo, solo traveling doesn't have to mean that you're by yourself the entire time. Like I, I like both, like I will do solo trips with having that as a goal to go off and be by myself. Um, and when I do that, I do choose locations where I think I'm not going to run into other people. So that's like the kayaking trips or any like backcountry trips I'll do. If that's my goal, then I go into areas like into the backcountry. But then there's also solo traveling in more of like a, a backpacking sense where you have more social interactions than you necessarily would if you were traveling with somebody else or with friends or with a group. Um, because you're forced to chat with people in the hostel, ask people for directions, like all of these little things that really just sort of put you out of your comfort zone and really force you to just put yourself out there. Um, and both have led to just like the most amazing memories and experiences. And yeah, you, you don't you don't have to be yourself or be by yourself when you're solo traveling, which is nice. Did you do Nepal and Morocco in the same trip or different trips or? Kind of. I So after I yeah, um, graduated high school, I just was like, I want to go travel, go do something else, go, I don't know, the classic, like figure out what makes me happy. Um, so I got a contract to work in Switzerland for a year. So I went straight there from Nepal and then... I had a brief little stint in the UK trying to get my passport um, over there because I have it through birthright. And then that didn't quite work out. So I went and spent the winter in Morocco. Um, and that one, I'd been out there for two weeks when I was living in Switzerland. I just took some time off and went out solo there and just fell in love with the place. Like it's, I was hanging out on this little like surf 
surf town on the coast and just like, I don't know, just a good way of life out there. So you're just sort of surfing every day and then the food's cheap. People are amazing. Um, so really just sort of thought I could see myself coming back there um, and then went for the winter before COVID and just sort of volunteered and surfed and had a great time. Um, kind of with friends, kind of solo. Uh, again, the same friend I went out to Nepal with, um, she came and volunteered with me at one of the hostels and then we went our separate ways and I went and worked at another one for another six weeks. Um, yeah, and then COVID hit and now I'm in Squamish. Yeah, and then now that you're in Squamish, or that like, what are the other kind of sports you do that people don't like to let people know what else you're up to? Because you do a lot of different things. Yeah, I definitely, definitely pay the Squamish tax um, and have a garage full of very expensive gear. Um, yeah, I moved up to Squamish with climbing sort of being my main sport. Um, and then got into mountain biking and grew up skiing as well. So I've got skiing and then got into backcountry skiing, um, slacklining, highlining. I got the kayak now. I've got a very shitty car that breaks apart because I spent all my money on gear and a good job that gives me the freedom to go. Like it's what, 1030 on a Friday. And I'm like, yeah. I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go biking. Nice. And you originally went out with climbing being your intention and you've done a few mountaineering objectives. Um, is that still something that you're doing a lot of or like how has that evolved for you as time goes on? Not as much anymore. It's still something that I do like mountaineering. Climbing for me was always so I could translate it into mountaineering um, just sort of, again, like getting, getting those skills that I can translate into these big mountain missions and like just getting up on these huge remote peaks. Um, that's sort of what my goal was going into moving up here. And then last summer I got very, the first summer up in Squamish was great. I did a bunch of peaks. Um, I was like, I felt very strong, like physically and mentally to go do these challenges that I'd set for myself. And then last summer I got very, very burnt out with work quite early in the summer and just got very stuck. Um, and then that affected my mental health and just sort of, I stopped doing the things that I liked doing because I was too burnt out and didn't have the strength physically or mentally to go do them anymore. So essentially I think I did like one, one climb last summer at the start of the season. And then I was just, stuck in a cycle of going to work and then being too tired and burnt out to do anything else and just like going lying on my bed at home all summer um so that was definitely I think that was a turning point for me because I I can always hate it it was a horrible cycle to be stuck in um but I also lost a lot of my physical strength that I would need for these climbs um and getting it back is also quite it was quite hard to sort of break out of that cycle because I was stuck at work like I couldn't just it was a different job so I couldn't just up and leave um because we were very short-staffed as well and then that sort of translated into the fall um but then I was forcing myself to just again like take baby steps so instead of doing these huge missions 
I would go for a bike and do like two laps on some easy, like easy trails just to get outside um, and doing a lot of that stuff by myself as well. And just slowly sort of getting out of that cycle in the fall um, and still not thinking of the summer as a write-off and just sort of translating what I wanted to put into big missions into a lot of little things instead. Um, and now it's good because now I've got that balance where before for me, like, the only thing I would want to do in the backcountry were like 15 hour huge, huge missions where if we'd be too sore to walk the next day. Um, and now it's that balance of maybe doing a four hour hike and going out for a couple laps, um, but doing more of the little things as opposed to just setting myself up for these huge missions that were just too taxing essentially. Um, so this summer has definitely been a good balance and then setting those boundaries for myself as well within work where I'm just like, I took my two weeks off in January is sort of the first thing I did. I was like, I'm taking two weeks off in July because I got too burnt out last year and I don't want that to happen again. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of recognizing when I feel that happening and just trying to be outside, even if it's just sitting on the couch where we have a couch on a balcony and it's very nice. So I'll just sit out there and just be in fresh air. Um, and yeah, I just sort of realize, I don't know. Yeah, sorry, rambled. <laughs> Lost my train of thought. You rambled, but you make good points though, because you know, it's easy to like look at someone's social media and say, oh, look at all this stuff they're doing. Like they climbed alpha, they went to Nepal and did Annapurna circuit. They did this huge like, eight day solo kayak that's so sick but then you don't see that other part where you know you were just at work for a long time and not having the time and the energy to put towards these things and it's important to also recognize those things too and then coming back to this summer maybe you're not doing the like 24 hour hike but Tori what is it that we say about boundaries boundaries are fucking hot <laughs> <laughs> hot girl shit hot girl shit I think also like I feel like it's hard I get in my head a lot if I know that because fitness fluctuates it takes like a balance to kind of like you know stay in that sweet spot and I can be so hard on myself when I used to be able to do something well but then I can't for whatever season of life that's stripped that fitness away from me and I ended up getting in a fight with my partner um, a couple weeks ago because like I've been recovering from burnouts, like similar, you know, it, it really cripples your fitness um, and doing anything becomes really strenuous and trying to keep up with him and his friends. Like my third day of ski touring was like, I don't know, it was the biggest day that I had done in years, like across a glacier. And I had a full meltdown on the glacier because I just like, I couldn't handle it. My body couldn't do it. Um, and so, and then like after that, my first day of mountain biking was like, 35 kilometers and like 1500 meters of climbing in two days That's for the season that caused four meltdowns in two days. And I was like, so messed up on the Sunday when we came back and I was just like, I can't do this. I can't do it. And I was actually in a class buying behavior. And there's a section of my textbook that analyzes the concept of flow. Cause it's a really big study um, area of the brain entering a state where you kind of lose self-consciousness and it's like skill. It's like, it's you're in the moment and you're performing at your highest ability. And it's something that they analyze in how we 
uh, do different sports, how we consume different types of like online media, like flow can be applied to a bunch of different places, but it was basically a, a chart um, where there's two axes. So there's like a Y axis and an X axis. And then along the bottom, it is the, uh, I think that way is skill. And then up is like challenge. So like how much skill you have and how much challenge you have. And then there's this section in the middle, like two lines and there's a flow area. So um, like lower, really high challenge, but low skill, you're above the flow area and you're in a state of anxiety. Hmm. So it causes panic and you're not able to actually perform. And then if you get too low, when you have high skill, but there's not enough challenge, you actually get bored. So you're also not performing well because you're not tuned in and you're not doing it. The perfect state is in the middle where you have a certain amount of challenge, but the skills to cope with it. And that's the flow state. So losing fitness, it's really easy to be in that anxiety state because you should have the skills. You know that you can be here, but you're all the way back here. Mm -hmm. And it can cause massive anxiety and like really harmful intrusive thoughts. And to kind of stay like positive and start to like get back into it and make sure it's enjoyable, like that's a whole skill set in its own because it can be a huge deterrent yeah and especially taking that first step into like it's a hard thing to acknowledge as well that Mm -hmm. and that was again last summer like what I struggled with is that I have all these like amazing friends and climbing partners who would reach out um who I'd plan these big missions with and then I had to not only come to terms with it with myself that I just didn't have that fitness anymore um to do these climbs because I would not only be putting myself in a state where I wouldn't enjoy it necessarily, but I'd also be risking my partner as well. Like if I physically couldn't get myself out of something. Um, so that was a really hard thing to sort of come to terms with um, and just have to tell partners as well. It's like, I physically can't do this anymore. Um, and now it's just like, again, like working on getting that fitness back, but in with, I guess that chart is good as well. Cause it's, that flow state will move and fluctuate as well, like where you find that state of enjoyment and that state of peace, depending on where your skill is at that point as well. So it could be at one point, like when you're, I don't know, at what you think is your peak fitness, um, you need a challenge that's that much more. And now it's sort of acknowledging that you can still have that same enjoyment for something that's not necessarily a 15 hour bushwhack up, I don't know, up a horrible buggy rock. It can be a nice bike ride or it can be a little like a local local hike or something like that. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I yeah. think it takes the self-awareness to, to do that though, because like um, this textbook talks about the concept of flow and behavior. So if you're constantly in an anxious state and you're trying to force yourself to do something that is above your skill level and it's way too challenging, um, you become avoidant. And you don't want to do it anymore. And then the thought of doing it is too much. And then you just don't end up doing it. So it's learning how to like uh, be honest with yourself and that incremental growth, exactly what you said, making sure it's enjoyable. And that's what I had to do with my boyfriend. I was like, I am not going to come on gnarly missions with you and your friends until my fitness is back up. And I'm going to do fitness the way that Tori wants to do fitness, which means if I see a fucking caterpillar, that's really cool. I'm going to stop and look at it. I'm not trying to get a PB here. Like, (laughs) so yeah. Yeah, you're doing things for the enjoyment of doing them. Yeah, and, and it sounds it sounds like you've done a good job of like being true to yourself and kind of owning that as well to kind of like come back after burnout and 
get back yeah, up to finding, so. finding that in different places as well. Um, so I started doing the kayaking trips um, essentially because of that burnout and just really just using that time to just sort of focus on why I liked doing that type of stuff and how I can translate how I feel doing that stuff into my daily life instead of just relying on those two or three days a month where I'm out doing something to feel happy and alive and all that stuff and how I can translate that into little moments spread out a lot more often and a lot more consistent. Um, which is weird saying I'm doing that on a two week solo mission. Cause that's, again, I do that. I do that once a year. Um, but yeah, it's just like a good, good opportunity to just really get to know what you're comfortable with and you're not factoring in anyone else's comfort level or what they want to do or their plans or what their expectations. You're just focusing on yourself. And there's been times where I've like gone to a campsite and set up tent and all this stuff and then hung out for like eight hours and then it started getting dark and I was just like, the vibes are off at this spot. I don't want to be here anymore. So packed up everything at 8 p.m. and paddled another hour to another little island and I was like, this feels better and set up there because I was just had to focus on what was making me comfortable. Yeah. Um, one thing I like about you're talking about with the flow state and um, doing things that are smaller, ad little adventures, but more consistent is it kind of brings us full circle to really like where we started this conversation of not all like, you know, when people say like not all scars are created equal, not all adventures are equal, but still like doing that little bit of adventure scattered through your week is no better or no worse than that one big thing that you do a couple times a month. So mm -hmm. anyway, just yeah. wholesome bringing us back to where we started. <laughs> I don't know why, but I feel the need to be like, it's the circle of life. <laughs> or like, I, I just really, that came into my head and I just needed to I'm add it. It has zero value, but. Well. Yeah, okay, great. I'm glad that we were connected. <laughs> and it rules us all. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I think one of my favorite stims is trying to sing the beginning of Lion King. It's like, ah, sabimba, habadi, sabidobido. I don't even, that's so not right, but it's that's not it at all. It's I like, know. ah, sabinya. <laughs> I know it's not like, habidobido, but it's fine, you know, I'm just out here. Sabading, sabida. It's like more like that than whatever you said. Anyway, digress. They both sounded beautiful. Thank you. You should take it on tour. Let's go. Let's fucking Absolutely go. <laughs> I mean, it kind of, it's going to like penetrate a bunch of, why did I use the word penetrate? It, it's going to be in people's ear holes. It's going to penetrate your ears. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway. My, my go-to song that gets stuck in my head is The Climb by Miley Cyrus. Oh, and yeah. And in Nepal, bringing it back to that, 90% of the trip is just going up and down. So in all of the ups, that would be the only thing in my head for like three weeks. 
Ah, see, mine is on Finding Nemo when Dory's like, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. I do that, but it just like depends what sport I'm doing. So if I'm skiing, I'm like, just keep scanning, scanning, scanning. If I'm biking, I'm like, just keep spinning, spinning, spinning. What do we do if we spin? And then mine stuck in my head and then it's there and it doesn't stop. And then I just start hating myself a little bit because I'm so over Dory in my head. Mine is Eminem. Ooh. It's like knees, that's weak, that's are one. heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. It's mom's spaghetti. <laughs> he looks nervous. <laughs> but on the surface, he looks calm and ready to drop bombs. Like I'm just climbing and I'm just like, dun, 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 like in my head. <laughs> Yeah. Those are all going to be stuck in my head now. Yep. And yeah, I'm going to think I'm of not, all these things. Not far to work through on, on missions now. Sorry? A solid Yeah. I also just recycle so many memes in my head. Like there's the one, um, like when I get a snack or something, it's like, it's like a reward. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <laughs> mother, I crave violence always. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a lot of them, so it's fine. We're okay. Yeah, I got sure yeah. does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Sophia, uh, as we wind down here, let people know where to find you. And then we didn't talk about it, but um, I know you also do photography. So I was just thinking that six <laughs> photos. Where can people find those? Find you? Look at shots of you doing cool things. I don't know. <laughs> um yeah i mean on instagram that's uh, sophia.warrington s-o-f-i-a and i've got a website as well for the photography um it's mostly just for me a way to document the trips i go on um so a lot of them are from a couple years ago and on those cli like those bigger climbing trips um haven't updated it for a while and yeah i don't know come Come find me in Squamish. I will do literally anything ever. I just want to be outside and love doing things with people. So if anyone's ever in Squamish, just shoot me a message and we can go biking and hiking and all the fun stuff. Sick puppies. I don't even know what that means, but I keep saying it. Sick puppies. I thought, Sick puppies. I thought the dog. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> a potentially ill doggo behind me? No, there is not. Apparently, my boyfriend and his friends used to say that in college. Don't know why I say it now. I don't think I've ever heard him say it, but tally-ho, it's fine. Sick doggo. Yep, sick freaking puppies. Okay, well, thank you for coming on, Sophia. I wish we lived closer and I got to see you more often, but it's fine, you know? Okay. I'll, I'll come out to the Rockies at some point. Fucking right, right. let's go. It. We'll do it. Yes, let's do it. Okay, sweet. Um, yeah. Thanks again for coming on and we'll see you when I'm looking at you. See you when I'm looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>